This is SideQuest Completed, the Hoppiest Game Dead podcast with your hosts Calvin and JC, coming to you every Wednesday with encouragement and advice on making your game a reality. I am JC, um, co-host here on SideQuest Completed, here with Calvin, on your source for hobby, indie, game dev, news, resources, advice, etc., and uh, welcome to our latest episode. Yeah, um, this is going to be a little different than the episode we planned. I mean, same topic, but the, the approach ended up different. Um, we're going to talk about um, um, our experiences with a recent game jam, mm-hmm. although the experience is going to be you talking about the success for your game jam and me talking about the feels that led to me just kind of dropping out, even though you end up doing, you did one that I suggested. Yeah. Um, and I, I pitched it around to a couple of friends. I was really excited about it. I watched everybody else do it, and I just kind of didn't feel it once it happened. Um, but I think, I think that I'll say that it was research of a sort mm-hmm. for a good topic to have the comparison of you know our opposite um, interactions with this particular jam. Yeah, I'm Which glad is, you found it because I enjoy the game jam. I had no idea it was on my radar at all until you mentioned it. It, it looked it looked good. I. I think also there were two of them at the time. You ended yes. up doing Bitter Jam, right? Yes. Okay. There was, there was Bitter Jam and Mini Jam ran last week, and I kind of wish that I had only known one because <laughs> uh, trying to keep both in my mind, I think, made it a little harder for me to decide what to do because part of it was, um, is there something I want to do for either of these jams? And it, 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 I couldn't really focus as well. Maybe that was part of why I didn't really find anything that, that sparked uh, enough of an interest to drive me into participating. Um, I think mini jam, I would have had a better luck at if I had mm-hmm. just focused on that. Yeah. It's kind of like the donkey from the parable when it's tied up between water and food and they're both equally close. So the donkey ends up starving and dying of hunger because he can't decide whether to do the water or the food first. Similar thing with just too many choices for game jams, and it was hard to decide which one to focus on. Yeah, I even had this this idea, like, I wonder if I could find some a game that uses both themes and submit Ooh. the same game to both. That was dumb. I shouldn't try to think <laughs> of that. I just made it more complicated for myself than it needed yeah. to be. Yeah, because like so much the value of a game jam is in the creative constraints. Yeah, well, I know that's true, but I think I it also can depend on the constraints for the person. So yes. there, the ones that I have done well on before are um, a couple Ludum Dares. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't care if other people pronounce it the other way. I don't Ludum like Dari. it. Nope. Correct way. And um, <laughs> uh, also, uh, what was it? Low Res Jam, I really enjoy. A couple times I've done that. Yeah. Um, and both of those, I don't know, those... There are the, the normal constraints, but also an openness. Like even though low res jam is something like sixty four by sixty four, you can make anything within that. So you know, theme wise, you're still open. I need uh, too much of a of a theming constraint is a problem for me. I just, I, mm, I have trouble really? getting motivated to make a game that wasn't you know purely an idea that I'm sparking. Um, like I have really hard trouble doing this as a job, which is you know. Oh yeah. I think that. I really enjoy this, but I enjoy working on the idea I'm excited about. Um, and maybe part of that is because it's not my job. You know, I don't know if it, if it was, if I would 
do it differently, just like I do coding at my job now. Um, but for game dev as a hobby, I just I don't get a lot of uh, motivation or, or a lot of rewarding feeling from working on a jam idea when it's just not an idea that that really you know gets me going. Yeah, that's a really important piece of self reflection and meta understanding because whatever you think of that, it's important you recognize it, either change it or lean into it. Because fighting against that without realizing that's a challenge for you, it's a great recipe for trouble. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, le- leaning into it because I, I wasn't thinking of it from that perspective, but I was thinking that I don't know if it might be different times um, throughout my life, basically, where that this is the way I would relate to these jams or to particular game ideas. Right now, I'm going through this phase of going back to these ideas that at one point I was really excited about and these games I didn't finish and I'm trying to like retroactively see those through Mm -hmm. and it may be that right now I'm already leaning into those things that really uh that really strike me that were really important to me at some point and and like because they still are um so I think I'm already leaning into that that nature of my interest in, in game development and maybe that's why right now this these jams were not working for me. You just didn't, weren't in the right space for it. Sounds like. Yeah. Um, I certainly wasn't like feeling like I need the kind of inspiration that a jam can give of, you know, I need a kick for a new idea. Um, because instead I have this list of game ideas I've already started and not finished. And those are the things that are driving me right now. The prospect of adding a new idea is not, not only not, engaging it's almost um feels dangerous or um you know the opposite of inviting it's like having like walking to a bookstore when you already have a bookshelf full of books only half of which you've read to use a totally not personal example yeah did you have to use that metaphor it really adds oh yeah yeah, perfect metaphor and perfect for me, for sure. And probably 115% of our readers and listeners. I think that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess but, if you want to get some more context, we should okay. I mention what uh, game jams are in general and what Bitter Jam was in particular. Yeah, um, and you have a better background with game jams and you actually completed Bitter Jam, so why don't you take that? Because I've been rambling about what I haven't done for a while now. Yeah, we can talk a long time about what we haven't done, but yes, let's talk about what did go down. So, quick summary. Game jams, as generally practiced, are an exercise where you create an entire game from scratch for varying definitions of scratch in a short time period usually 24 to 72 hours most often over a weekend sometimes a week sometimes a month that's much shorter than what is usually spent on a development making game like two years five years cough etc um bitter jam in particular was a bit special in that on top of the 60 hour time frame you had so Friday night to Monday morning, you also were given a care a sprite sheet, a I think it was like forty or forty by pixel 
image, something about that, with 21 sprites, little images, to use in the game. So think Game Boy sprites, Nintendo Entertainment System sprites, each of these being 8 pixels by 8 pixels, black and white. So really constrained. And those are the only sprites you could use in the game for this game jam. There are also bonus challenges, like keeping the entire game to a grid shape. And if you wanted to go that far, design it so that no sprites ever overlapped with optional challenges. Yeah, for this one, I ended up making as much a challenge for me to learn Rust game development in real time in this case, and to learn ECS into the component systems, which is an architecture used for a lot of game development. We can go in later and focus on that while still trying to make something that was at least minimally interactive and mildly interesting. And for yeah, that, I, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I like that you use this as an opportunity to use a new system or a new uh, technology. Um, that might have worked better for me. I really like I, the, the times that jams have been successful for me have been times when, or some of the most of the times that they have been anyway, have been the same kind of thing where I use it as an avenue, not a project in of itself, I guess. Right. Because um, then you can, you know, if you're not as interested in the theme or, you know, that the, there's other things to drive you, you know. Exactly. Like even Anthrotari, my game project of several years now, started as a game jam entry, at least Strawberry Jam, as an exercise to learn Pico 8. And I did learn Pico 8. I also learned that I didn't want to make a visual novel in it. I went back to Renpai. But Anthrotari would not exist without me having attempted it in a game jam. And one big upside to focusing on the learning part is that regardless of how your game turns out, regardless of whatever votes it gets or doesn't get afterwards, you will come away with that knowledge, come away being a better developer for having stretched yourself that way. And no one can take that away from you. Yeah. So, um, all right. So we got a good background on these these two, and we've talked about what I did not do. Um, why don't you talk a bit about how your actual project went? You know, um, from the the game itself, and how was you know learning to to build a game in Rust like this? Oh yeah, let's go for it. So, one thing I did before the game started, the game jam started, was to actually ideate different things I could do for the jam. In my morning pages, I brainstormed. I went down and made a point of writing down 10 game ideas at some point. Is that right? Yes. 10 to make sure to stretch my brain as far as it could until I got something interesting. One or two ideas are easy because those are usually obvious ideas. A third idea is harder and more likely to be a good idea. When you get 10 ideas and you feel your brain starting to strain like an overworked muscle, that's when you get the most, some of the most original ideas because they're so far afield from what was obvious. I actually ended up using my 10th idea for the game design, amusingly enough, because it just seemed like a really good fit. Basically, oh, I have the sheet right here. I got a small legal pad I used to write things down. Let me see where did I put that. Ta -da, ta -da. I should probably post these. Remind me, Calvin, to post the actual pictures of this... Uh, my notes in the game were actually pretty short. Only one, yeah. two, three, four pages from 
like a four-page actual design doc. Yeah, I'll, I'll get those from you. I'll get this from you before I put the episode up, and those will be um, in the in the show notes. So that that'll be great to to see some context along with the link to your game. Awesome. So it's a total coincidence. But I just read uh, Stephen Pressfield's "Do the Work," a great book, very short, easy read. One of the central recommendations in that for any creative work was coming up with your three act structure. It's not just for plays. And I did three acts for this game uh, after I had the idea. Act one, there's only one villager and one uh, plot of vegetables. In this case, I was going for a simple simulator game. Act two, others gather to your village as you grow it, uh, raising families. Act three, disaster strikes, natural or through your own carelessness. One villager escapes, you try again. That's the aspiration. It gave us both a starting condition, a main gameplay loop, and an exit condition. Even for something as simple as a game jam game. I spent some time sketching out the GUI. This is oh, the three-act part. Everything else came after getting the sprite sheet. I brainstormed, if I recall correctly, I brainstormed before getting the sprite sheet because these are general ideas and the sprites mm-hmm. didn't matter that much to it. But the sprites, once I got them, did inform what kind of game, particular game I would do, what kind of design I would have, whatnot. Because the constraints, the actual physical constraints in the game were so small, it was really easy to draw up a GUI really quickly and fit it on the small page. When you talk about these uh, X1, X2, X3, is that three different stages with different kind of gameplay that the that it goes through correct well three well, implicit stages yeah interesting so, uh, and and with the different sort of goals and interactions at each at each act from the way you described it as i was imagining it interaction would be basically the same with the changing number of things you would interact with at one time for example more farms to handle other things coming in af- based on different developments in the game all aspirational, yeah. Yeah, the next I, thing. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I like, I like that. I don't think I've really like broken up. You know, I'm, I struggle with progress in in uh, in game design a lot, and I haven't conceptually broken up um, the the progression into parts like that. You know, I'm always kind of thinking of it as a a trajectory or a curve, mm-hmm. um, and this sounds like a way to break down that progress in some more concise chunks that that would be good to think about so that's that's something i want to that i'm gonna try because I, I i like that way to conceptualize it yeah go for it it's a really useful thought exercise especially because it gives you an ending of some kind or another because even a continuous game loop like still has a point where it changes state from where you started to get you back to where you started it always requires an ending of some kind and it's very important. Another thing Pressfield emphasizes in his book, the importance of having an ending in mind really early on. If not, it's the first thing you do. Yeah. After so, I had that, go ahead. Oh, so, um, oh no, go ahead. I won't. I, I was going to ask another question, but instead I'll let you, it sounds like you already were continuing. Go ahead. Yep. Um, next thing I did was write out some very simple rules. For example, villagers need one satiation 
and eat one thing per five ticks. Tick being an arbitrary amount of time in the game. Uh, farms produce one food per ten clicks. Villagers start with 20 satiation, 20 fullness. Uh, stuff like that. Eggs spawn from a villager if they have at least four satiation for 20 ticks in a row. Uh, villagers die if they can't eat after 10 ticks. Uh, and two page, two small pages of rules before uh, my last one, which was, we'll come back to roads later. Because after those initial rules, I realized I had more than enough for interesting gameplay and potential for emergent gameplay. Excuse me. And stop there. I could have gone a lot more into brainstorming rules ideas, other interactions, maybe mobs, maybe enemies, natural disasters, whatnot. But I also realized I could all wait until I actually had something to build on. Until I actually had a working simple rules engine that would might limit my ability to do things I might want to do, like make it hard to add a certain kind of new unit, but also would inform me the limits of that system, would tell me what steps I should take next. It was a good thing too, because I didn't get anywhere close to adding all those rules, adding all those interactions. And any more planning beyond that would have been with wasted effort, taking away from the actual game dev time. Hmm. So, um, what if you could put that into a percentage, like of what you planned and what you ended up uh, putting in, roughly? Hmm. I can actually go by a number of rules and do a little bit quick math. I want to say uh, what I actually wrote down, idea wise, thirty percent, maybe thirty to forty percent. Because by the end of it, I did manage to get villagers could appear in the game. They moved around. You could add more villagers, skipping the egg part. Had farms in the game, and they would propagate as well and get eaten by the villagers, who in turn would, if they could not feed enough, start starving until they eventually died from hunger. And I guess I actually got a fair amount of interaction in the game by the end of it. So um, a lot of times the the actual uh, amount of effort put into a jam or uh, how how much you pour into it can vary a lot. You know, the jams we say are you know between 48 and 72 hours or around there. Um, but sometimes they're much more low-key and people just kind of tinker on it through a weekend. Other mm -hmm. ones are really intensive and people might all get together in one, one place and work and sleep like 20 hours a day work and obsessively work on the, you know, putting everything they can into it. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to guess this was not on that end of the spectrum. I'm just kind of curious, like, about, you know, over in terms of, of um, making this episode about game jam, not just because of this one project, how much effort or time did you put into this over the weekend? Like, was yeah. it a, a high priority or just something you did in the existing downtime you had? Yeah. Thank you for asking. You know, like, when I did, I participated in GMTK, I think Game Maker Toolkit Jam last year. That was an entire team of people. So I want to say like eight people all getting together intensely, eight to ten people, I think, getting together intensely in person, staying at my, oh, working out of my house 
my girlfriend's house for much of that weekend as a whole unit collaborating real time. And that got us an interesting game in, I think, 48, 72 hours. But that was hardcore, very heavy focused, everybody batting down the hatches. And me ordering in pizza to feed the whole team, working as a project manager, basically. This, uh, for Bitter Jam, was much more chill. It was just me. That was on purpose. It was much more balanced against other life stuff going. I also had a, a couple of days off from work, Friday and Monday, so I had wasn't having to squeeze it in alongside my workday. Though, given that it was from Friday 8 p.m. to Monday 8 a.m., it didn't really clash with work anyway. But also meant I was coming into it relaxed and going out of it with time to relax, which also reduces the pressure. So a lot of this, my progress has to be with the caveat or with the important note that I was not constantly at my keyboard for the 60 hours. And that both had many different impacts, positive and negative. Negative insofar as I didn't get as much done as I would have liked. Didn't actually was times I wish I could have been at the keyboard, but had other commitments, just general stuff. I was also much more focused when I was there because I knew I only had like a couple hours of that given stretch. So I was much more focused and much more, it was easier to cut down scope because I knew I would not have several more hours to add to it. And those periodic breaks from the work lent to me a lot of perspective and improved my ability to write the code and to sit down and do refactoring when it was necessary to make it more productive within that tiny time frame. Instead of batting down the hatches and trying to just push my way through a lot of the work. I remember in the very first few hours of the game, I did a lot of, wrote a lot of manual code just to prepare to use all the sprites. And I only end up using one, two, four of the 21 sprites. So that was a good chunk of time writing code for sprites I never used, which if I focused on just entirely on only adding those exact sprites I needed would save me easily a couple of hours. But I did manage to break out of that little tunnel vision, myopia, and get back, reset, get back to the higher level purpose of completing a playable game because it had those important real breaks, either because of other stuff or of choice through the game jam. So how do you feel like the, you know, between the two spectrums of, um, of the intensity and involvement in the, in the jam, um, do you see them as one inherently better than the other, or are they just approaches that work different for different kinds of goals? Um, like in this case, you know, the goal was, I, I, from, from what I can tell more about what you were learning than what you were building. So, you know, how, how do those, those two approaches kind of, compare definitely very situational when it's a whole team and you're looking to deliver that's a particular game result and everyone else is depending on you that's a different dynamic than the individual both positive and negative because whenever else other people are there depending on you that makes it easier to stay focused and not get lost in other work or other tasks that you would like 
avoid playing a video game as a distraction for two hours. We meant to do it for just 15 minutes. Same time, it can also push you into unhealthy stuff, like eating a whole bunch of pizza and monster drinks for an entire weekend and messing up your liver. So custom balances. I probably could have been more focused on the game if I'd had someone else depending on me for it. But at the same time, it was easier for me to achieve the goal of learning when it was entirely at my own pace. And I think I personally, especially as a strong introvert, I found it more fulfilling because I wasn't trying to manage team stuff on top of game stuff. That said, when I participated in the GMTK as a project manager kind of role, that was with the purpose of learning to be more of a project manager, team helper, big picture kind of person who if I wanted to do that kind of stuff in a professional environment where I couldn't just choose to do it myself. So again, that was a learning opportunity, but for learning to work in that kind of uh, high pressure, high level environment. So whichever one you do, make sure you're doing it for a particular reason and not just because you feel like you need to crunch or you feel like you need to do it all on your own for the sake of doing it all on your own. So do you think there's any room for something in between those two sides? Like, um, you know, does a, do, I'm not sure the right way to frame this. I could see something like having a partner in a different time zone so that you can do all your stuff in your schedule and hand it over to someone in, say, the UK to do when you're asleep and vice versa. And that removes a lot of time pressure because you know they're asleep. You, there's no point much in bothering them for most of the game jam because you know they're asleep. Mm -hmm. And then having one or two other people is manageable in a way that having seven other people depending on you would be more exhausting than invigorating. But if you're also a very gregarious, clear extrovert, that might be just a perfect environment for you. Mm -hmm. I guess the thing about game jams is that there's probably literally dozen plus of them happening on just HIO alone on a given weekend. So go out there and try the different stuff and see what works for you. So um, yeah, I'm glad there's a lot of different options like that because I think um, like while this particular one didn't work for me, I at least for most cases and most times in my life, I just I think that the normal way that people talk about and and frame jams, you know, the big uh, social aspect of them, mm -hmm. uh, those kind of just I, I would love to do one maybe someday, but in yeah. general, they don't they are not a good fit for me. So mm -hmm. having the option of different approaches is is really good for me. Um, and while I didn't do this one, it is that flexibility uh, both within any one jam, like um, you know, with Lundare, there's people who take both approaches to that, you know, there's single people, single people who make uh, more, more laid back approaches and there's big teams that, you know, go crazy all weekend. Um, or there's just different jams that have different um, approaches that make sense for them. Uh, but that flexibility is the thing that, you know, lets more people be involved in jams and find the ones that work for them and find the approaches that work for them. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think that's important, but I also think that like, we don't, 
we don't hear from people who take a more casual approach a lot. Yeah, um, very much so. The more intense approach, the more loud the person or team is about what they've done, you know, for a good reason, because they're more passionate about it and they're going to talk about it more. Um, so from the outside, some people can get a little intimidated from the way they see jam culture represented by the people who um, are a lot more intense about it. And then they they may not feel that that fits for them, which yeah. I think means that they're missing out on a lot. Yeah, like it's easy to hear loud people. Yes. Yeah, often they're drowning out many quieter voices. Yeah, so one thing I definitely want to say about my GMTK experience and my Bear Gem experience is that I thoroughly enjoyed both of them and came away as a better developer for both of them, but only because I approached them with that angle of learning and purposefully doing the given roles. If I had tried to be, if I tried to like be constantly doing programming with several different people I didn't know how to work with while learning Unity at the same time, which other people did successfully that weekend, I probably would have been introverted just mess. Whereas if I had tried to make uh, Bitter Jam a super social event for me as a developer, instead of as a project manager kind of role, I probably would have been worn out by all team communication and just not enjoyed it, been exhausted instead of actually being satisfied by it. So right. it's important that I enjoyed them both because I came, approached them in a way that lent themselves to being a rewarding experience. So I want to make sure that we touch on one more, uh, one more part of your jam experience, which is the, the learning aspect, you know, cause it seems yeah. the focus that you had on this one was uh, rust and ECS. So how, how did that go? Um, I don't think this was your first Rust gaming attempt, right? There's some other stuff you had done. Um, yeah. Is this the first time you've tried to do, build an ECS system? Or have you used an ECS system that you haven't built before? Like, you know, have you, Is it your first time using it or, at all or just trying to implement one? And, and yeah. what new things uh, Rust-wise um, did you get to try out or have success in? Yeah. So my first... I've read a lot of Rust before during my first Rust like serious personalist project. That was actually another Strawberry Jam entry, uh, nicknamed Tarask. I did last year. Last year, I think we. I think that we've talked that about that one a few times. Um, I I don't know if I can find the right episodes for the notes, but I know that it's come up. They're out there. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah that was again about learning Rust and learning event-based systems, which came into play here. And for the similar one. Yeah, this is my first again learning more Rust because with Rust, I really much, very much want to learn the muscle memory. So I'm not having to look up exactly the right syntax or look up, always think about lifetimes or whatnot. So I want to get that out of the way so I can focus on the actual project versus just the code part. So getting much, definitely a smoother developer with Rust than I was even last week for this. So that's good. Also, so entity component entity component systems. I'll explain those right quick. Um, basically, you know, object oriented programming. We have quote unquote objects, which all do their own thing, have their own data, whatnot. A typical sprite 
in a game, like an enemy in a game, an object-oriented model will have their hit points, their position, their ammo count, what have you, which is useful and get off the ground quickly. They can quickly become very hard to manage if you have to deal with a lot of objects in the game all having their own stats, their own numbers to track. In Entity Component System, you have you still have entities, be enemies, uh, player units, flying bullets, what have you, uh, mushrooms to eat. But you also have different components. For example, I had the villager component, and then I also had the satiation component. So villagers could have satiation, their hungerness levels. If I had enemies in the game, they would have had satiation as well. Um, stuff like that. Uh, eggs would have had a different kind of satiation level, babies than adults, if that happened. And ECS, the system part, is that you deal with these components as a whole. Uh, for example, you iterate over all the different instances of satiation. Look up, look that up in the, let's see what kind of entity you're dealing with. Is it an enemy's satiation? Is it a villager's satiation, etc.? Handle that and then go on to the next one. And it's much easier architecturally to handle like all the hunger at one time handle all the movement at one time of court changing coordinates, handling all the damage dealing and whatnot in one run, mm-hmm. especially because you can often parallelize it. For example, have one thread do all the movement calculations, like making sure they're not running over each other, and then have go over all the damage stuff to see if they're still alive, see if they're alive after that. And it's much more. It makes the the code can be simpler and that it can go faster for the right kind of games. Yeah, there's um, I know that um, there's a big push from the developers behind Unity um, for their new um, transition from their old behavior system to mm-hmm. their new ECS system. Which yeah. right now they're in this transition where both functions simultaneously um but the the big push behind it is a performance side of it that oh yeah um the systems moving all the logic and calculations into a single place that applies to a whole set of of entities together um is allowing them to push up to like you know tens of thousands of entities uh, within a, a game scene um way more than the previous system could could handle it's interesting how much a different architecture can affect that performance you know like on the, the same system with the same language and compiler everything else being the same you know that architecture can make a, a huge difference oh yes um of course ecs is I, I i really love it but it is important to point out that the moving around of the logic can be a much different way of thinking about how things are happening oh yes um but for, for good and for bad like um, you know, one one example might be that you could have where every every object on every physics tick um, 
applies gravity force down to itself, you know, to, to, to move down mm-hmm. uh, or to fall, to implement gravity. Or you can have one gravity system that just iterates over everything with a physics component and and, and does that. So, you know, that moves that logic from something everything does to something done to everything. Oh, yeah. I guess a good metaphor is if this was a f- paper filing system, object-oriented model classic is classically imagined, it'll be like having all of your papers from 2018 in one filing cabinet. So your taxes, your receipts, your um, leases, your um, any other paperwork, cash checks, etc. Whereas an ECS system, you would have like the taxes box of everything, all each year's taxes together. You'd have the receipts box, and you would have to sometimes cross-reference, like go from your 2018 taxes to your 2018 receipts to make sure the numbers maxed up but you're generally dealing with just that one category of thing at the same time. And when it comes time to look stuff up, it's a lot easier because you know to look in that one other box in that one specific place. Mm-hmm. So like if I'm looking at like, why do I have this receipt for um, say car ride one m- month? And did I account for that in my expenses? You can then go right to your tax box and uh, go right to the right month and find it instead of having to look through the entire 2018 box. Where else that giant box of 2018 did you put the taxes? Yeah, that's, another good, that's a good analogy. Um, is there anything else that you want um, to mention or cover about the jam um, oh, before yeah. we you know, move on to our um, usual wrap-up? Yeah, I would definitely love to. I can post to the repo later. It's not public yet, but I can do that later. I can, one thing I definitely did very early in the jam and purposefully was to focus on something on screen, something mildly interactive, both in terms of user input and the system doing stuff, the game doing stuff as fast as I could, which means I didn't actually start adding ECS until later. But also meant I understood what I was doing when I added ECS because I was already feeling the pains of not having it. When it came time to add it, I did just enough game dev to discover why it was worth trying ECS. And then when I actually added it, it was made a lot more sense than trying to, for me, than to try to do it from the beginning without an understanding of the purpose of it, not a real visceral understanding. And I feel a much greater appreciation for the value and a much better understanding of when not to use it and use it, ECS, than I would have if I just tried starting with ECS right out of the gate. That's interesting. Was that at all an intentional way to approach um, doing it, or did you just not decide to add ECS into the system until until that point? Because that... that I wonder how intentionally you could do that because that that sounds like a really good way to learn not just how to do well just like you said how not just how to do a, a, a new thing but why and and when um, so actually you know implementing it as a change rather than a foundation gives you that that comparison uh, is that something you intended to do? I honestly forget. I don't even remember if I meant to use ECS out of the gate or not. 
I do wish I'd done a journal. I'll talk more about that. But I do know that with the very real tight time pressure of there's only 28 hours left, etc., making the choice to go back and refactor the code in the middle of a game jam, it seems like an odd thing to do. But I could tell very quickly, given the very limited scope of the work and feeling the visceral crunch of the deadline coming up, not two, not six months away, not two quarters away, you know, 22 hours away. And when I did that, I could really feel the improvement that came with choosing a more suitable architecture, the problem at hand. It was not at all theoretical. It was just mm-hmm. being able to see two hours later. And if I had not refactored, since two hours refactoring, I would have been much more of a hurt to four or six hours later. I would have been beating my head against my desk at, you know, T minus two hours left um, instead of having a service, very serviceable game that would have been really easy to extend had I uh, another day to work on it. It wasn't like, yeah. oh, I think I could have done more if I had worked on it. Imagining that. It's more like, here are the particular places I would have added the code. Here's the particular rules I would have added. Like, a very clear path forward to improving the game in a material way. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you um, that you that you had that, that, that comparison. I think that that's, that's really cool. Uh, whether it was intentional or not, that you have that context to reflect back on uh especially since you know you um you see you're seeing the, the ecs um learning as a, as a as a key thing you're getting from this so you, oh, yeah. it seems like again whether intentionally or not you got a lot more value out of that um out of using the jam as a test bed um than you maybe even thought you would um, oh, yeah. because of that so that's great yeah I can actually look back at my main morning pages in journal later to verify that. Yeah, that'd be, I, I would be interested to know if there was an intention behind that or not. And, and whether or not there was, I I would like to try to keep that idea in mind. And I wonder, you know, the next time, um, yeah, I'd love to try that intentionally um, myself or to, to know if, if you have an upcoming time when you could try that again, you know, if there's something new to learn. Um, yeah. That, so would be, actually, that would be great to, to see if you can really make that an intentional thing. So the good news is I'm already doing that. The one thing I really wish I had done at the very beginning of the game, Jim, was to keep more of a developer journal. And so what I've been doing instead was I started a journal after the game jam because I've continued to work on the game. It was interesting enough. I saw enough clear paths for improving the game and from maybe extracting some sort of proto-game, some sort of toolkit out of it that generalized to future game jams. Because it was a fair amount of work I put in that was felt like spinning wheels and otherwise grunt work, um, setup work I could have done beforehand or could do beforehand for next jam and then focus much more on the game part. So that's something I do wish I'd done was journal what I was doing especially because that would have given me more perspective on what I was trying to do. And mm-hmm. the simple act of journaling is really good for your brain and for your thoughts and can do a lot to clarify thoughts and give you perspective. So I recommend everyone take a good chunk of time out of your game jam 
every so often to journal stuff throughout your work time. And you'll probably find it's a better experience for it. Yeah, I, I, I have all been for I for a long time I've been a proponent of keeping a, a devlog open constantly while working on anything. Um, I've suffered over the last couple months in that I've kind of wavered over um, decisions to change what tooling I use for my devlog, uh, and but that has made it a little more difficult to keep it consistently because I'm not like in a stable. Um, uh, a, a stable workflow and it has given me the opportunity to see how much my reflection and my workflow suffers by not uh, doing a consistent devlog um, oh, yeah. which I had done for consistently for the last few years so while I've suffered from trying to change my workflow and, and not finding a new thing to settle into it's given me the chance to really compare and see, oh yeah, this really has been making a difference. This really was important. Uh, so I'm excited to get back to, to doing it consistently and um, and getting the value back out of it. And, and I hope that everybody gives it a shot sometime. Yeah. Is there any I'm, one takeaway I want to have from for listeners from this episode is that you two can try Game Jam. And more importantly, you two can learn from your Game Jam experience, no matter how it turns out. Yeah, I would like to add to that. So while I did not follow through with my intention on this jam, I think one of the reasons why, one more reason why I, I did not, is also that I didn't need to because it was right at the end of this April project I did, yeah. where, you know, most jams are shorter, but there are some one-month jams. But also the, the big thing there is you can just make up one. You can yeah. just set yourself a, a, a time box of, I'm going to make a game this week. I'm going to make a game, a game this, this weekend or for this month, or, you know, whatever time frame works for you with whatever constraints work for you. Um, do it to scratch an itch and you no know, time boxing and, and limitations that you set for yourself are work just as well um, and can tailor to what you need to do. Um, so, you know, I scratched a very similar itch to a jam by, by doing that. And yeah. There's other times whenever I've I've done similar you know time boxed personal projects and that works really well for me, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's a great way to um, get something out of your system to to finish up something that you really just need to call it done yeah. uh, to experiment with a new thing. Uh, you don't have to wait for a jam to come along. You don't have to uh, join into a jam and have the to feel the pressure of releasing it if you don't want to. Um, you know, there's a lot of value you can get out of this um, out, outside the confines of a, of a jam itself, just with the same structure. Yeah, I know too um, that I, found I, 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 I do need to add to that, though. Um, <laughs> I, I almost forgot this should have been one of the topics. I released my game that yeah. I did for April, and I forgot Sweet. that that was I, I, because we're recording this a couple of days later than we usually do. I think I forgot I had not released it as of the last episode. So. Yeah, um, Seed Magic is currently for download up on um, my itch.io page. I'll include a link Woo-hoo! to that in the show notes as well. Um, it, it it went as well as I wanted it to. It was a, a small one-month game, uh, recycled assets from a previous attempt to build it that never got finished. Um, it was my attempt to transition from Unity back to Python, which is what I did years and years ago as a game development tool. I'm very happy to have made that move, and I am probably going to nice. be sticking with it. I've already started my next Python game project. I don't <laughs> know if it'll just be a one-month thing. 
Um, it depends on how the first week or so goes, um, which is another remake slash completion of an old project, trying to go through that old list and then finish things. But I, I wanted to say I feel really great to have finished something, to have put it out. Um, I hadn't finished it and put out even a small game for a little over a year now. Um, so, it, yeah, that felt that felt good. I was glad to get that out. Um, and I got some feedback from a few people um, playing it. And that, yeah, it, it was good. Yes. It's like, that's the greatest lesson is like getting the game out there, getting that feedback, seeing it out in the world is a really good feeling. That's one thing I found really liberating about the Game Jam 2 was that I was, ready or not, done one way or another, 8 a.m. Monday. So mm-hmm. I put my game out there, submitted it about 12.30 a.m. that morning because I had to go to bed. And I was done. I can move on. I decided to keep working on it because I enjoyed it, the project as much as I wanted to. But even if it had been an unpleasant, otherwise unpleasant experience, even if it felt like a game that wasn't um, good enough to release, quote-unquote, I was still done with it one way or another. Any work beyond that was voluntary. And I could have stopped if I wanted to, but afterward. You um, you mentioned that it was also fulfilling to get a game not just out, but in front of people. Yeah. And I think we, we didn't, one thing we didn't mention about Game Jams is there is post-jam itself, there's um, almost all jams have some sort of um, voting or review stage mm-hmm. where the people who participated as well as other people often can come through and play a bunch of the games and vote on them for either just a ranking or for rewards or for, you know, first, first prize, second prize sort of thing. Um, so they also have a built-in audience. Um, the larger the jam, well, kind of both the larger amount of reviewers, but also the more noise that you're, you're stuck within. So it's another cool thing. Even a small jam, you'll get like this built-in audience of people who, you know, it's not not to make your game that some big runaway success, but for getting feedback, they are fantastic. Um, yeah. the, the the one consistent um, big benefit I've had with the jams I've done is getting really quick feedback. You know, because when you put it out there, it goes into the voting round, and you've got people playing it and telling you whether or not they like it or and why. And that is invaluable feedback from strangers that is almost impossible to get any other time, especially when you're an unestablished indie developer. And these are developers who have just been to the, oftentimes just been to the same pain you just went through as -hmm. your fellow game jam participants. So they understand they don't look at it and go, Oh, that would have been easy to add multiplayer. Um, They go and so, wow, I'm so amazed that you managed anything at all. Cause they can be really impressed with what you did. Because they really yeah, well, appreciate in a stressful way how much um, you actually accomplished. Yeah, well, that that is that is true. Although I will say, for the largest jams, especially Ludumdare, there are a lot of non-developers who do go through and and play the and play and vote um, on those. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's probably an outlier, just because it's such a large thing, um, and it's it's got there's a lot of streamers, for example, that like to do post Ludumdare streams by going through and playing a bunch of the games that they find so both kinds of feedback are good um but yeah the fact that it will include that developer mindset of feedback is really nice because it's uh it's sympathetic which is important when you've really rushed to get something out the door and you don't really want the um uninformed opinions maybe yeah and it's very important too to 
take all the feedback with a grain of salt, especially negative feedback. And this just came up in a podcast I was listening to about writing. This is by people who actually make their living off of writing. <coughs> Sorry. But even they often will just stop reading negative feedback because it is a common human condition that for every 10 positive comments we get, we'll read one negative one. And we'll only remember the one negative one. We're just wired to be much more sensitive to negative feedback. Just as humans. And some people especially so. So you might want to just not look at the feedback. If you're worried about it. Or to um, ask someone else to find you the good stuff that's worth reading. And pass that along for you. That someone else, uh, family, friend, whatnot, can be much more dispassionate going through the feedback and find the stuff worth reading. But the most important thing is that to remember the rules are made up and the points and votes don't matter. All that matters is that everyone you're laughing and enjoying it by the end of it. Well, I'm glad that's the most important thing because we're hitting an hour and it's good that we fit in the most important point before we need to wrap it up. Yeah. So I, um, I think I, 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 I really liked hearing your your, uh, your experience here. Uh, we've talked a lot about game jams in the past. I know that we've done at least one episode just about game jams as well as they're coming up all the time. Um, but this is the first time we've had an opportunity to um, to deconstruct the experience a lot closer, like right after. Oh, yeah. So that was that was a really great opportunity. I'm glad that we got the chance to do that. Um, I'm sorry. I'm both sorry that I didn't get to give my own perspective of actually following through with it. Um, but I'm also glad to have talked about my other perspective yeah um i'll look forward to a jam whenever it does click for me and 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 i'll talk about and um yeah thanks for thanks for piecing uh -hmm. or taking apart all the the thoughts that that went into your your game um i have to say unfortunately i haven't got a chance to play it yet because you put out a linux build and i just didn't have a test system super accessible uh to play it um but i am going to do so as as uh, soon as i can yeah, I'm going to try and get a Windows build, Mac build out there as well. Hopefully it won't be too much trouble. It's a pretty simple game. Pretty modest requirements. The actual gameplay, well, I could probably show the whole gameplay experience in a GIF. So don't worry too much about it. I, I think that's a good that. idea. Um, are you going to put the source up on uh, GitHub or something I think you mentioned? Yeah. I want to give it a little more time to noodle around with it first, add some, make some more changes to it, improve the architecture. Journal if some you, more. And if you do that, I, I, if you put up the source, I will try out making a Windows build because I'd love to just be able Ooh. to poke around at a Rust game and just sort of see how it's put together uh, and tinker a little bit. And you know, having a, a starting point for like what just like the infrastructure in the in the in the framing is like would be uh, would be really cool. So yeah, um, I will probably take a look when you put the source up, no matter what. And if you do that before you get the Windows build, I I will see if I can get one set up because I'd love to just have. I'd love to know that I have the pieces available if I mm -hmm. want to tinker with a Rust game at some point, which I would like to try out. Yeah. So that would be that would be really cool. Yeah, like Rust is a really good one to learn for game dev because it's can be so performant. Mm hmm Yeah. Yeah. For whenever I finally go to making my Dwarf Fortress competitor, uh, <laughs> I'll need something really performant for all of the inner lives of the dwarves. Yeah, Elf Dungeon. I think mine would be robots. Robot, yeah. Robot castle. 
Yeah. Yeah. So there's your next game title. All right. So I guess, oh, we haven't talked about um, what we've been up to otherwise, watching, reading, etc. We just hop right into that right quick. Uh, so, Calvin, what have uh, you been doing game dev wise? Aside, from, oh, what have you been doing game dev wise this last week? Well, yeah, I I had finished um, putting out Seed Magic. I um, pulled a few pieces out of it. Um, uh, for example, for Pursuit Pi Bear, I released a tweening library up on Pi API. Um, I can be able to use my next game and that other people can use. Um, I am starting to pull out some pieces that I'm going to contribute back, um, like some rendering improvements that I made to implement things like um, opacity, sprite coloring, um, and a few other things. Um, And now I've been starting on... um, making my next game which is mm-hmm. another remake slash finish thing uh you know where i'm going back and remaking back and the completing future? a yes where i'm remaking <laughs> to complete a game that i didn't finish in the past mm-hmm. um this one is a uh is a tower defense game about Ooh. a race of alien mushrooms that <laughs> attempted to invade the earth in the 1100s and were fought back by the vikings <laughs> and they are now they are now at the their solution. last stand trying to trying to escape the earth trying to build up their strength to launch back into space while being attacked by hordes of vikings that you need to fight off um, and feed upon the corpses of the falling vikings which gives the the energy that they need to grow their army and eventually set off into space to escape because they can't take over the earth so the game is titled the last stand of the mushrooms Wow, I love it! I love it. Yes, I was also want to add it when I said I love uh, tweening. I was being dead serious because that's how you get the animation. It, it was fun to make a kind of like basic library like yeah. that. Um, I'm also, you know, I get to do things like implement all the different easing functions that usually you just drop in as a name. One of the cool things about making something. Um, with a in development um, engine and uh, with the languages often, but not like, uh, well, you know, I'm kind of like doing a lot of things out of, on, on my own, not a lot of stuff that's available yeah. out of the box, but just at the right level where I get to do some cool low level stuff, but also can be productive. So I like that. I get to see like, how do I implement a, a bounce in easing function? Yeah. And I get to look that stuff up, write it, tweak it a little bit to see if I can get the feel right, stuff like that. In games like Mario and Celeste wouldn't be Mario and Celeste without good tweening, without good um, ease and functions, bounce back and the like. That's one reason why they feel so good and so crunchy. It's because of just those kind of algorithms. So you're doing you're doing good work, Calvin. Well, um, I hope I have more to share about that one um, next week, and yeah. I'll definitely be uh, this Saturday. Uh, so this episode should be up on Wednesday, and on Saturday, uh, my my Twitter and my uh, TIG source uh, forum posts will have updates to nice. the new game and um, the progress and the plans. So I'm going to try to be more open with the development of this one, and and also maybe do some videos along the way of like the, the progress. Try to do some devlog stuff more openly. Um, so I hope that that comes together as well. Uh, what have you been, um, 
get you know around the outside the jam have you gotten some other work done what have oh, you been up to inside the jam too one big advantage to my modest daily goals for anthrotari is that i still completed them during the jam if i was trying to do several hours of game dev work every week uh Every weekend, I would have seriously crunched my ability to do enjoy the game jam, but because I had more manageable daily completable goals for my game project, I just did them alongside the jam. It was almost that's like great. That's, great that's, game work. That that's cool. So, um, does that help to like? Would you think you would have felt any kind of like guilt if you had done the jam just like successfully, but put aside your your usual work for that, like? would that have felt bad? Like, is there, you know, do you think it was really important that you kept up with even those modest goals over those couple of days? Yes. And like, yes. What, yes. And yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, definitely. I, cause like, I really don't want to break my streak cause it's freaking huge right now. And it's only going to get bigger. Sure. And I would recover from making the streak, but it's all the more reason to just keep with it because those little 15 minutes, 25 minutes, 400 words, whatever unit it is, that adds up really quickly o- over time. Not in a weekend, not in a week, not necessarily even a month, but um, over time it really adds up. And still advancing. I'm going to do my Anthrotari after, probably right after this podcast because it's getting late. All right. Well, I'm glad that you had such a great success with uh, with the jam. I'm glad that it didn't um, you know, push out even a, a moderate amount of your normal game progress um once again i'm really happy to have heard all about how your experience was with it um i think all the thanks goes to me for you know showing you (laughs) bitter jam so i'll take all that credit um but i'm looking forward to whatever we talk about next week um i think we already have a topic on our list and the audience will know about that when the episode comes out yeah Um, but um yeah, thanks for the conversation, and thanks for all the, the insight into how your, your experience was. Yeah, you too, Calvin. Thank you very much. All right, so listeners, thank you for dropping by. Uh, you like, uh, find us, subscribe on I think Spotify, iTunes, where we find your podcast. And yeah, thank you for listening. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the SideQuest Completed Podcast. If you weren't subscribed... Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or at our website, sidequestcompleted.com, where you can find all our episodes and an invite link to our new Discord server.